Hi, you are listening to the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. This podcast is for policymakers, governments, researchers, students, businesses, and anyone that is interested in conflict and development issues in Africa. On this podcast, we hear from experts from across Africa and the world. Your host, Dr. Michael Wangpa, will ask the questions you would want answers to. Michael Wangpa has an extensive experience spanning over a decade studying, researching, writing and consulting on conflict and development issues in Africa. Welcome to another episode of the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Wangba. Uh, today I'm joined by an important guest, um, Dr. Uh, Michael Bow. Uh, Dr. Bow to discuss um, drone use and drone warfare in, in Africa. Dr. Michael Bow is an associate professor uh, at the Department of uh, Political Science, uh, Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Bowles has extensive research focusing on terrorism, uh, political violence, drones, and American foreign policy. He is the author of The Drone Age, How Drone Technology Will Change War and Peace. Uh, Michael, um, you've done, I was looking at um, your publications, you've written quite a lot on, on drone drone usage. It's, 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 that's quite impressive um, um, stuff you've done there. Thank you, Michael. Yes, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I've been working on drones maybe for about a decade or so. Um, I started working on this uh, maybe around 2013 when I started to write critiques, 2012, 2013, started to write critiques of U.S. policy on the use of drones for counterterrorism, focusing at that time mainly on countries like Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, where you were seeing the Obama administration, mm. in my view, overuse drones. Um, and so I, I started working on that uh, as a kind of critique of saying, look, you know, there's a place for this kind of technology. Certainly, it has a counterterrorism value, but we have to be very careful about overusing it and adverse strategic effects that that follow on. And that led me down a path of research looking at drone proliferation and then looking at how drones change decision making, which was the focus of the last book. So now I'm I'm kind of extending from that into some new work that I'm doing on terrorist organizations and drones and how they manage to innovate with them. Um, so it's been a kind of a long history of working on this stuff for for both terrorism, political violence, and for drones as well. That's amazing. So since, since the Obama administration, we, we saw the use of drone during the Obama administration. You, you know, we saw drones used in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan. But since then, we've seen some sort of um, escalation or proliferation, or if, if you like, if you can say, like, you know, a widespread actors using drones now from, from that era now. How, how do you see this uh, evolution of, of drone usage? So I would say in general terms, this has been the kind of democratization of the technology. I mean, if you were to go back to look at the Obama administration, you know, drones were much less expensive than a manned aircraft, but they were certainly much more expensive than the average sort of militant organization could get their hands on. And in fact, actually, a lot of cash-strapped governments found 
you know, this sort of 10 to $15 million price tag for a Predator or Reaper drones are fairly expensive to do at scale, right? So, so the, at that point in time, drone proliferation was kind of limited by what I would describe as kind of the natural cost of the technology. It was just expensive. Over the last 10 years, what we've seen has been increasingly essentially the shrinkage of drones. That the, They've gone from being Predator drones with a lot of quadcopters to the quadcopters, that's a much more common model, and they've got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time to the point where now you have very capable quadcopter drones that can do surveillance, reconnaissance, um, direct targeting, and they're a couple hundred dollars. And once you hit the price point of, of, a, of a drone that can you know, show you first-person view and ram an explosive into a target, you're really talking about something. If you can get that for two to three hundred dollars, then there's very few organizations around the world, and certainly very few states that can't afford that. Uh, and so, I would say the technological and financial barriers to drone proliferation have dropped radically. As a result, drones are now in the hands of a lot more states and a lot more actors. And then we've moved from a very different world where, you know, if we were looking maybe a, a decade ago, the the real concern was how countries that have very powerful air forces, the U.S., Israel others would be using drones in places like Pakistan or Yemen or Israel's case in the Palestinian territories. That's very different than today. And we're now we're not looking at a case under which the conflicts are asymmetric, but we're looking at conflicts that are symmetric, where both sides have drones. So now if you have a case mm -hmm. where you have a military and a non-state actor and the power gap between them is not substantial and both sides have drones, how does that conflict look? Mm, mm, mm. Interesting. You, you've mentioned quite. I, I think we should we should go back a bit and say what, what, what are drones? Because you know, we've, drones can also be forced for goods. They can also be used for for legitimate use. So can, can we kind of like unpack that and say what, what because you mentioned predator drones. So they, they, what, what what drones are? What kind of typologies do we have out there? Sure. So if we go back, drone technology. All drones are is unmanned systems. I mean, usually aerial systems, UASs. Um, and the, the history of drones goes back a very long time. It's kind of a myth that we've only invented drones in the last 20 to 30 years. In fact, actually, you can go back, and I talk a little bit about this in my book. You know, there are forerunners of drones around the period of time of the Second World War, where drones were used for target practice to improve the accuracy of, of people firing, um, you know, artillery off of ships and, or firing um, weapons off of ships, guns off ships. So we go back to the Second World War with examples of drones that were used by the U.S., the U.K., and others. So unmanned technology, unmanned aerial technology has been in effect, and many countries have had them since 40, 1940, 1950, 1960, and onwards. Really what we saw is uh, the real step change in what happened was that in the early 2000s, right around the September 11th attack, um, the U.S. managed to solve the technological problem of how do you have a drone looking at a target on the ground and have it automatically, the feed automatically beamed back to someone in the ground control station. And it was around mm -hmm. 2001 that the U.S. solved that problem. It solved the idea of, okay, we can have a drone over Pakistan, but somebody in Virginia is actually watching the drone feed and making decisions as to what happens in the drone in Pakistan. Uh, and so what you saw was an explosion of drone usage after that pivot point in around 2001. But when we take a step back and look at the technology, all that it means is that it's unmanned and drones can go in size with an enormous amount of variation. So you can have drones that are the size of a U-2 aircraft, that is to say an extraordinarily large surveillance aircraft. There are what we sometimes call wizard drones, high altitude surveillance drones, very technologically sophisticated. There are the drones that work like Predator and Reaper drones. That's the ones that got the most attention. They're called male drones, medium altitude, long endurance drones. And then there's an, a growing class of drones that are essentially small quadcopter drones. And those are the ones that are used far more commonly. They're the ones that are used by militant organizations in Africa. They're the ones that are also used by governments. 
but they're also used for a whole series of scientific and technical purposes. So we see them used by everything from conservation groups to environmental groups, in some cases to even real estate, right? People use drones to scare on buildings and show mm. real estate. Mm. So what's really happened is that we've moved from a world where drones are expensive at the medium altitude, long endurance level to the $150 quadcopter drones, which have always been there, but have dropped so low in price and are so much more capable than they were 15 to 20 years ago, that that's really what's transforming things. So when people say to me kind of what's happened to the drone market, I often say, you know, 20 years ago, the focus was on the medium altitude, long endurance kind of mid tier drones. Now increasingly, sorry, that was my dog. Now increasingly, um, now increasingly what we have is drones at the top and at the bottom level. Hmm. Mm, mm. And so well, we well, you mentioned the okay. Go on, go on. Mm, so, so, so yeah. drones at the very exquisite level, and then drones at the kind of lower altitude level. Mm. You mentioned the market, and, and it's quite interesting that the market, the drone market, is is what like very billions now. Uh, I, I think it was um, uh, the drone industry inside quoted uh, as of twenty eighteen, we had about it was what uh, the drone market was what about fourteen billion dollars, and it's projected mm -hmm. to to increase about forty three billion. Uh, dollars this this year. What, what what is the implication of that? So there's a lot of things driving that. I mean, military use is one large part of it, but a lot of it is commercial use as well. We're seeing companies being able to pick them up. Private security organizations are picking mm. them up. All sorts of scientific and technical groups. So the overarching drone market is driven in part by military production, but it's also driven by commercial production as well. And what makes this particularly tricky is that the commercial drones are increasingly being retrofitted for military purposes. So, you know, in most technology, we have a kind of interesting sort of divide between the military and the commercial halves of it. But in the case of what mm -hmm. we see with drones today, we don't actually see that. A lot of militaries are buying the same thing you and I could buy off a, off a store, an electronic store, and retrofitting them. And so the, the mm -hmm. fine line between military and commercial doesn't exactly always apply, but much of the growth is in commercial market. Um, we're also mm -hmm. seeing an explosion in uh, what is counter UAS systems. That is to say, Governments are having to invest in, okay, I need to have systems that can knock these drones down and knock them drone down reasonably safely and can take them out of the air if they're a particular problem. So you're all, you're seeing not just an expansion in the drone market, but you're also seeing an expansion in the counter drone market. Uh, and, and this is a particular challenge for governments that are facing militant organizations on their territory, as we know, for example, Nigeria, as and others are. You know, they're going to have to invest in counter UAS systems when we start to see examples of militant organizations that are operating with drones, they're going to have to find ways to protect large crowds of the, large crowds of people, for example, or protect mm. stadiums, malls, any places where you see large numbers of people gather that might be ideal for a terrorist attack. Mm. But we've also seen where uh, you know drones uh, can also be be you know not only bought in in the market; they can be adapted and you know and used for for, for stuff like that. Um, and we've seen. Um, armed groups like Hamas having such capability to 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 develop uh, uh, um, such stuff. How how do you how do you see? Um, should there be what is the scope of this in terms of the technical capability to develop such? Um, you know, do, do, do you... so non-state actors are remarkably adept at doing the, at building these drones and, and adapting these drones and so I, I would look at it in this if you look at organizations like hamas they've invested in drone drone infrastructure for a long time so they've been getting technology from iran but also from the commercial market and they've actually built divisions to explore how to use drones in i think a relatively innovative tactical way we know for example that on the october 7th attack hamas used some drones to kind of confuse and blind the Israeli ground stations that essentially stopped 
people from getting across the border, and that's one of the reasons the attack happened. So they used it basically as an enabling force. And Hamas is relatively good at using drones to, to buzz targets within Israel, although Israel has fairly sophisticated defense systems to knock them down. Other non-state actors have proven to be remarkably capable of doing so. Hezbollah is a good example of one that I think has probably the most sophisticated drones um, network, uh, um, partially because they're getting Iranian technology, but partially also because they've able, been able to build ground control stations, airstrips. They've even built a propaganda wing. Hezbollah was the first mm -hmm. non-state actor that was capable of launching its own targeted killing. In other words, it targeted someone on the battlefield and directly killed them. Until Hezbollah had mm -hmm. managed to do that in around 2017, no actor had actually managed to pull that off. Now, we've started to see groups like the Islamic State, when they were operating in Iraq and Syria, they've been very successful at sort of retrofitting drones and commercial drones with explosives. And they've managed to take mm -hmm. what I would describe as kind of your average commercial drone, pack it full of explosives and ram it into a target. And that's a mm. very big deal because once you get to the point where you can essentially make a relatively a flying IED, which is effectively what they are, once you get to mm. the point where you can make a flying IED, there's a lot more vulnerability on, from the air if you're working on the ground. So if you're a mm. soldier guarding a base, you now have to worry much more than you did 10 to 15 years ago about something mm. coming from the sky mm. to be able to take you mm. out. Mm. Um, and mm. so we've seen a lot of creativity. We've seen a lot of innovation. We've seen a lot of adaptation so just taking the basic fundamentals of the technology and adapting it in some important way among non-state actors um and so and it's in a sense become easier right as this information has grown as we see more people online talking about how to do this that organizations that maybe don't have the wherewithal of hamas or hezbollah they don't have the infrastructure the budget the iranian technology well they're learning from groups like hamas and hezbollah right so you don't have to be that well equipped to be able to pick up what those organizations mm -hmm done and say we can do the same thing so we're seeing a kind of diffusion of these of these kind of tactics around the world hmm. well whilst we're seeing uh while we've seen african governments we've seen in south africa we've seen in nigeria using we've also seen um terrorist groups or armed groups within those countries like for instance you mentioned nigeria you know eswap in 2022 used um uh, drones for propaganda video and they also use it to 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 gain surveillance uh of, of the mm -hmm. Nigerian army and then planned ambush. And we've, but then again, we've, we've seen, you mentioned IED as well. Um, mm -hmm. Many of the casualties that have been suffered by the Nigerian military or counterterrorism force as well has been from landmines. But, 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 you know, we all begin to see these capabilities as well. How, how what, what is the scale of this problem? What, what should be, what is, what is the scale? And looking at countries like Nigeria where, they don't have the, you know, the classical counterinsurgency or classical asymmetrical warfare. They're not, you know, skilled in that. And then we've seen where they've reacted in the way. And then it's, you know, like you mentioned, can, you know, the counter approach. And then they've led to other collateral damages, such as this all, you know. So how do we, how do we, you know, ratify all of this stuff? Where, where are we going? How do we respond to that? It's a, it's a really good question. I mean, so we've seen evidence of Islamic State affiliates using drones for surveillance, not so much for strikes, although I think that's likely to come mm. in Nigeria. And then also we've seen examples of other organizations that we've seen evidence of Boko Haram doing it. Uh, we've also seen evidence of Al-Shabaab elsewhere doing, using drones. So there's clear mm. evidence of militant organizations kind of in the region doing so. And specifically with Nigeria, we've seen real evidence of them using it. And what we've seen so far has largely been them using it for reconnaissance purposes. And that's the easiest thing for mm. a militant organization to do is essentially to fly the drone up and that's it's itself very valuable, right? If you're a militant organization, if you think of it from their point of view, obviously not supporting their point of view at all, but if you think of it just from yeah. this right kind of 
what are they attempting to do? They're attempting to see the battlefield and they're attempting to make sure that their attacks are not only effective, but that they minimize their own losses. And if you think about that for a non-state actor, a militant organization, that's very important because militant organizations and asymmetric conflicts have to be very worried about losing large numbers of their own people, right? I mean, that's their greatest vulnerability. So what we're seeing is that it's, it's not difficult at all to buy a commercial drone, to get it from the black market or get it from the commercial market, to get it sold to you for any kind of commercial purposes in Africa or elsewhere, and just kind of pilfer it off to be able to use it for military purposes and use it for reconnaissance. The result mm -hmm. from the government's point of view is going to be a much more effective insurgency and one that is able to threaten from the sky. Are we going to start to see attacks, for example, on Nigerian army positions with IED-enabled drones? Quite possibly. I mean, that's not something mm -hmm. that I would say is out of the question. The other concern I would have is, are you going to start to see attacks on concentrations of people? Are you going to start to see kind of atrocities where IEDs are flown into crowds, IEDs are flown into markets, places where you have large numbers of people gathering for soft targets? And you could very much see so, see that. The problem is, what do you do with a $150 drone that's cheap? It's very hard to stop the organization from getting it. And particularly when you're networked like an Islamic State group is, where you have connections mm. with other Islamic State groups, the idea that you're going to sort of suppress the technology is almost fanciful, right? It exists. It's a, it's a cheap technology. You can steal it out of a university. You can steal it out of a real estate office. You can steal it out of any place that's a commercial entity. It's going to be very hard for, to get the technology out of their hands. Um, mm. There are other ways you could think about it. You know, one thing I would be investing in is this counter UAS systems. And there are counter UAS systems that can blind drones, that can freeze all drones in place, that can knock drones out of the sky. And you have to be very careful with the counter UAS system because one of the questions is where does the drone land? And you don't want a drone packed with explosives dropping down to a crowd of people. So sometimes you want to be able to land the drone yourself. But there hmm. are counter UAS systems. And actually, we've seen a lot of examples of, of how states are now workshopping counter U.S. systems in Ukraine. Ukraine has invested a lot in counter U.S. systems to knock Russian drones out of the sky. So what we've seen in the Russian-Ukraine war has been a kind of laboratory for counter U.S. systems. And mm. so if I were you know, thinking about this from the perspective of the, of the government of Nigeria, for example, what I would be thinking about is, okay, I have, I have militant organizations that have the potential to cause great harm to the civilian population as well as to my soldiers. It's impossible for me to completely suppress the technology. Are there ways that mm. I can knock it down safely or block its operation to make sure mm. that it can operate? Um, the other thing that you can do, and I, this is a sort of more technical point, is that you can geofence drones. And so one thing I would be investing in is looking into what I can do to improve the level of geofencing. And what geofencing does is it stops the drone from moving to a fixed target. So say, for example, in an American context, if I decided mm. I wanted to fly my drone over the White House, the White House is mm. geofenced. If I plugged in those coordinates, I couldn't do it. Like literally the drone wouldn't accept the input to go fly over the White House because that's a no-go zone. You do not fly over the White House. And mm. if I were Nigeria, I'd be thinking very much the same thing. What are my what are my most mm. important military, political, and commercial assets? And can I geofence mm. them in a way mm. that would make it very difficult? Now, can that be hacked? Yes, but mm. it takes the next level up of computer skill, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the guy who buys it off the shelf on Best Buy, he can't hack a, ge a geofence drone. It takes mm -hmm. a bit of computer skill. And so that's going to limit the number of attacks you're going to have. Not going to bring it to zero, but it's going to limit to the number of attacks you're going to have. You're going to have fewer attacks. So many countries now are geofencing airports. You would want to geofence a commercial airport to make sure that they didn't do what was done at Gatwick Airport, you know, a number of years mm -hmm. ago where commercial drones yeah. were reported on the airstrips.
Mm. I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned them um, geofencing and then uh, because in, in Nigeria, uh, one of the arguments that I've, that I've making in, in some of the papers is uh, sometimes we tend to focus on how the government's uh, excessive use of force could have radicalized the group. So, so I was looking again how the government's inability or incompetency in, in defending its position or its arsenal and then how they've gained um, access, how the Boko Haram has gained access and then stolen some high military grade weapons. So, you know, this this, this kind of like relates to it in terms of geofencing and, you know, geofencing like strategic uh, positions or strategic uh, like the airport or, you, you know, facilities to, to, to do. But if, if we look at them, um, the regulation. So we've seen where the United States um, Security Council, have, you know, they started the conversation about regulating uh, uh, drones. Uh, what are the responses so far in terms of like curbing, you know, this drone misuse and how do you drone see that? Is that is effective? Yeah. So there, there are some what, what I would describe as kind of normative statements that are being developed. Um, there was a Berlin memorandum on counterterrorism use of drones that was attempting to kind of lay out some guidelines and some regulations. Uh, there's been some late breaking attempts to kind of regulate this from an international point of view. So the Obama administration in the end days of its administration decided that it was going to offer a series of general principles for how states should use drones and let's think about ways under which we can regulate their misuse and so on. The problem is that the Trump administration, number one, ripped that up because of course it did. But the second thing is that after that, by the time the Biden administration was in place, by the time we hit around 2020, essentially so many countries around the world had the drones, so many non-state actors had the drones, that it's very mm. difficult to get any agreement. And there's very little enforcement, right? It's very hard to enforce a sort of laws and rules and regulations on technology that's so cheap and so widely available. When you talk about the comparison between that and something like nuclear weapons, which is extraordinarily expensive, very hard for most states to get, very hard to move, very hard to develop secretly, you can mm. regulate that. But when you're talking about something that you know, as as cheap as an automatic weapon, as a Kalashnikov, well, well, that's much more difficult to regulate. And as we can see with this proliferation of small arms, drones work very much the same way. Low-cost technology is extremely difficult to regulate. So there are some kind of voluntary compliance schemes. There are some things that states, some, some guidelines that states have sort of offered to say, this is how we think you should use your drones, and this is how you shouldn't use your drones, and this is how you might want to control your technology. Very, very, very difficult to police. Um, most of the time, insofar as there's regulations around drones, it falls to the Domestic Aviation Authority. So in the US, the, mm. the, the, the organization that does it is the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, that mm. governs all the civilian aircraft. Um, and they have fairly strict regulations, at least from an American context, for drones that are flying above roughly 10,000 feet, because the assumption is above that, you know, civilian aircraft are operating, and that's a risk for a drone to collide with a civilian aircraft. The, the real problem is where it is mostly unregulated is below a couple of hundred feet. That's basically mm. unregulated. Um, in the U.S., mm. there are some rules that apply. Very hard to police that. Very, very hard to police that. So most of what I see is kind of drone misuse is low altitude, small first person view drones or commercial quadcopter mm. drones. Very, very hard to regulate. So at the international level, regulation is weak. At the domestic level, depends on how strong your regulations are and how much monitoring and compliance they have, right? If somebody's misusing a drone at a couple hundred feet, it's not obvious to me that most governments would be able to pick that up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. To your point, though, on theft that has happened from the Nigerian government, one thing that mm -hmm. is an interesting way to try and regulate this is that a lot of drones, not all, operate with um, serial numbers that can be traced. And so if I were thinking about this from a government point of view and I wanted to be certain mm. there wasn't 
you know, theft from military installations, for example, or corruption that meant that it got off the target people it shouldn't be getting to. There are ways to trace serial numbers and to find out where your drones are coming from, which will tell you where your weak points are, and they'll tell you who's kind of not keeping a good eye on your drones. Mm, interesting, interesting. Funny enough, we're talking about drones. I think was it was it yesterday? Um, and you were talking about the capability of Hezbollah and then how they've they've struck in Jordan and killed three um three American troops and injured them. Uh, yeah, that's that's posed a real a real issue for the US, I think, because the so since the war has emerged in the Middle East, we've started to see basically Iranian-backed militias that are linked to Hezbollah, and they're not exactly Lebanon's Hezbollah, but they're Hezbollah affiliates that are based in Iraq. And they've been, and then also in Syria, and they've been taking periodic shots at American troops. Um, and they've been lobbing missiles. And by one estimate, the U.S. had knocked down roughly 27 drone attacks in the Red Sea was the statistic I saw where the Houthis were throwing drones at them. Mm -hmm. But they've also been getting ground assaults. So U.S. forces that are stationed in Iraq and Syria have been watching drones come back to them. Again, this is back to the point of democratization of the airspace, right? It's mm -hmm. no longer the U.S. attacking militant groups. Militant groups are attacking the U.S. from the sky. And just the yesterday, you saw uh, three American servicemen and around 25 injured in an attack in Jordan. And the Jordan base has been supporting a lot of their operations uh, in the Red Sea. And I think I would be very surprised if there wasn't a military response from the Biden administration in the next week. Mm. I would mm. expect there to be a military response. I would expect it to not go to Iran. I don't think the Biden administration will hit a target in Iran, though it is an Iranian-backed militia. I think the mm. Biden administration will essentially try to destroy those militant groups in Iraq and in Syria. That's mm. what be my expectation. It's a series of bomb strikes in Iraq, Syria, maybe in Jordan that's attempting mm. to destroy that network. But then again, when people look at when people look at um issues of uh you know when, when we look at for instance we look at Israel and Hamas and we look at this proliferation, people look at how to respond to it and look at should we not be focusing on the conditions that are uh creating these groups in the first instance. Oh, absolutely. Effect... Absolutely. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, because because then again, we're looking at how, you know, further militarization does not necessarily solve it. It, it does also lead to just escalate the whole issue. So what's going to be the way out? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you're exactly right. So one big problem with drones is it becomes very easy for me to treat this as an entirely kind of defensive problem where I attack militant groups and I assume the militant, I just sort of manage the problem by recurring drone strikes, right? So if you're thinking about, you know, uh, a government like Nigeria, for example, yes, could they manage the Islamic State, growing Islamic State militancy with drone strikes? Yes, they could. But is that a good idea? In the long run, does that produce more militancy? And one of the things that we mm. see is, well, the problem is you hit militant groups, you're hitting them, if you hit them around civilian areas, then you are producing cost on civilians, then you may affect the recruitment level that we're beginning to mm. see. And, and the problem is mm. it's a sort of chicken and an egg problem. So if you were to look, for example, um, at the Sahel, where the U.S. has had, you know, there's a growing Islamist militancy group, but the U.S. has been using drones for a long time. Okay, well, is that, is, is the fact that the U.S. drones were there is producing the Islamist militancy groups, or is the fact that the Islamist militancy groups are there is the reason why the drones are there, right? It's a chicken and an egg. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think the bigger problem is not to get kind of caught into the myopia of we solve everything with a missile, right? Mm -hmm. You don't solve everything with missiles and you don't solve everything with continual drone strikes. And that was one of the critiques I offered of the way the Obama administration done it. And generally a critique I've had of U.S. drone policy. 
A, a formula where you are continually bombing targets around the world is not a winning formula. You have to undercut the causes of why those groups want to attack you. And, mm. you know, there are groups out there that I would say are incorrigible. Uh, I would put the Islamic State in groups like Al-Qaeda, JNMIM, in, in, in those categories. Those organizations, if they're Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, they're inflicting such harm on populations, they're committing such horrific atrocities that there's nothing you can do but destroy those organizations. But for mm. organizations where there is based on a genuine grievance in the civilian population, it is far better to do conflict resolution. It is far better to undercut mm. the reasons why they might be attacking you than simply to kind of mm. manage the problem with drones, right? I just throw a drone mm. strike at this. It's not a winning answer, I think. Mm. Mm. But speaking of um, speaking of uh, American policies and, and the Obama criti critic of the Obama administration, uh, it's it's one that I've related to democracy itself, to the, the backsliding in democracy. We've seen that also in developed mature democracies as the US, as the UK. And mm -hmm. I, I call it like something like a moral dilemma where where the US and other Western nations, you know, don't have that kind of moral authority to to, to be able to, and then the abodings, you know, some of like rogue states or authoritarian mm -hmm. states or even this non-state armed actors. So we've seen during, if we go back to Nigeria as well, during mm -hmm. the Obama administration, they, they were reluctant to, to sell uh, the you know, fly airplane to, to the Nigerian government based on corruption of the military. But when Trump came, they saw it. And then we've seen again two strikes, one on the IDP, the one recently in December, where they say these are the dental strikes. But but then, like Riley said, this this could also help to mobilize these groups. And, 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 um, and but it's also helped down in, in terms of it's, it's helped the Nigerian counterterrorism force in terms of gaining some sort of... Um, you know, so I could make a case for a military approach, but it has mm -hmm. to be like short term. There's a case like Riley said that there are just groups that you can't but just destroy. You can't but just you know approach a military. Really. Whereas also yeah. there are groups where mm, go on. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, but 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 then again, the, the, the problem that I was going to talk about is, is it is so diffuse where these these groups are like you can't clearly draw distinctions between these groups and other lesser groups where that you can engage with how, how do you deal with, with, with all of those dynamics where you know you know people are not really distinguishing between between these groups it's a good question so so there's a couple things i would say here the first is that the u.s has had kind of inconsistent drone export policies under the obama administration the general rule was that they would only sell drones to nato allies so they didn't generally sell drones beyond that mm. um and what happened is the trump administration ripped that up and said if you're asking for it we'll sell it basically <laughs> Because the Trump administration's view on this was we'll make as much money from it as we possibly can. And we don't really care about, mm. about the corruption elements and so on. We're not going to worry about some of the things that the Obama administration. So you're seeing U.S. policy kind of swing back and forth based on who's in power. Mm. And so that, that's mm. how I would explain mm. I would explain that. And I think to your point about sort of pushing groups together, I think that's a really important observation, which is to say, like, you know, when we when you attack a militant group, First off, the question is, you know, you're, you're making a distinction. I'm going to bomb Islamic State affiliates, but I'm not going to bomb this group. And this group, I'm going to try and deal with mm -hmm. it. Okay, well, that's a hard mm -hmm. thing to do in practice, that, especially when you're looking at these groups that may have kind of lateral links. Because very few of these mm -hmm. organizations are self-contained. A lot of them, they, they communicate, they have links, they have ties, even if it's in a marriage of convenience, right? That they don't particularly ideologically mm -hmm. agree with each other, but they'll, they have common enemies, they'll work together. Mm -hmm. The second question is, if you use what I would describe as military force against one of those targets, do you push them closer together? 
And we've seen examples of this, that militant organizations that watch the, the neighboring militant organization getting attacked come to their defense. And so mm. it is, you have to be much more careful about the use of force in it. Again, there are situations under which I, I see very clear examples of this. If you have a imminent attack, if you know, for example, that someone's going to attack a civilian target and they're on the way to do it, then I think there's a compelling kind of self-defense argument. Don't just stand there and let them attack a civilian target. Hmm. And I think you can also make this argument, and this has been a more messy argument around decapitation. So if you have a case where you have the leader of one of these organizations, the Osama bin Laden equivalent, right? If you have hmm. them, if you take out the leader, does the organization begin to crumble? And that's an argument where you can say, okay, well, maybe I use a drone strike in this instance because it makes the leader, takes out the leader and the organization's weaker. But mm. routinely using drone strikes for every single kind of problem that you've got with these organizations isn't a good idea. And you've got to be very careful about the politics on the back end. You don't push these organizations together, inadvertently strengthen them, get more people to be recruited to them, get more people to work mm. together. That's something you have to be very, very careful that you don't do if you're going to use a drone strike. And so, again, I don't think it's reasonable to ask a government to not ever, never conduct a strike from the air. They're going to do it with either manned aircraft or drones. But the question is, can you be extremely selective about it? And if you look at the Biden administration before the October 7th war, that very much was their policy. They had actually changed U.S. policy to say we are going to be much more selective on the way we're doing it. We're not going to abjure the tactic. We're not going to just simply say we'll never do it again. But what we are going to do is say, we're only going to do it if we have a very high value target that's a self-defense. In other words, you're stopping mm. an imminent terrorist attack. Or mm. we're going to do it if we have a leadership. If you have the leader of the Islamic State, the leader of Al-Qaeda, you know, you don't have to, you're not going to capture them realistically. Mm. So in that case, mm. you degrade the organization by taking out the leadership, but not every rank and file member. Because you don't want to push mm. these organizations together, strengthen them, and so on. So I think mm. it's a really tough call. Once you have the assets as a government, You've got to be very careful about the politics on the back end, I would describe it as kind of what's the impact mm -hmm. of it. You can't just assume these organizations just sit there as you bomb them. It changes their politics as well. Mm -hmm. They can be very adaptive. I agree with you. They, they, they're very quite, quite adaptive. But if you look at it in terms of, um, so if we, if we, if you take like a broad, like a projection and say, where then look at the Russia-Ukraine war that like, like you've rightly described, it's, it's presented itself as a laboratory for, testing at these you know mm -hmm. this kind of technology and then you look at what's going on in the in the in the middle east and, and then look at look at africa and then in the uk recently we've heard about oh you know we should be preparing for like a war you know the uk can mm -hmm. you know the, the the politicians should just start thinking about you know there might be war down the line with, with russia and stuff like that so how do you how do you project um from now to the next 10 years in terms of like conflicts around the world and how this technology is going to define define these this conflict and i mean it's a really good question i mean i i kind of hope that in the case of the russians that nuclear weapons changes the calculation i mean i come of the of the view that generally once you enter nuclear weapons into the equation that states have to be very careful so though russia is going to fight in ukraine it doesn't seem obvious to me that russia is going to invade europe because that triggers article 5 under nato and gets it into a shooting nuclear war with the united states and with european countries so mm. i'm less convinced of the overall russian invasion argument with europe but as a general kind of thing of international security my, my argument is drones and in many cases other types of equipment other types of new emerging technologies are democratizing warfare and by that i mean they're getting into the hands of more and more people and we're starting to see a lot of evidence of what I would describe as kind of, um, I've 
put it in different ways as sort of the personalization of violence. In other words, instead of just attacking targets from a distance or instead of targeting targets as targets, I'm able to hunt down that guy in that tank and attack that person with a first person drone or to attack with this sometimes called a kamikaze drone. Switchblades are good examples mm -hmm. of them where I'm literally going out and taking out commanders on the battlefield. That has led to, I would describe a lot more violence at the individual or personalized level and it has like, given a lot more people the ability to inflict harm individual to individual in the battlefield. And I think that's really important. And we're starting to see examples of this, not just in conflicts in Nigeria, but we're also seeing examples of this across the Sahel. You've even seen examples of the Wagner mercenary groups that are operating in Sudan, yeah. right? You see examples of that. And so if you, if you look across the world, what we're seeing is a growth of violence, but a growth of violence in the hands of more actors able to act violently. I and mean, once I give everybody $150 piece of technology that can hover through the air and slam into a target, there's a real risk of higher levels of violence. And so mm -hmm. I look at this as a case under which conflicts that don't involve nuclear weapons are likely to get messier, as we can see in the Middle East, as we can see in Ukraine. When you get nuclear weapons into the equation, I'm more convinced that that changes things. I'm not confident Russia's gonna do drone strikes in Britain, right? Because you're gonna trigger Article 5. But when you're looking at a civil war, when you're looking at a conflict against a mercenary group, when you're looking at what you see in the Middle East, which is traditional kind of cross-border state to non-state actor conflicts, I would see, mm. you'll see a lot more drones, a lot more uses of emerging technology, a lot more use of assassinations, a lot more uses of drones for assassinations, and a much more kind of violent world in that way. Mm. It does sound bleak. Is there any, is there any, <laughs> is there, is there any positive, can we, can we add on a positive, is there any, is there any glimmer of, you know, positivities that, that, that we can... <laughs> I think there is. I mean, I think, I think, uh, yes, I think there is. I, I am not suggesting, I think you could eventually get to a point where you have the leading states in the system start to agree to some norms and rules. It's going to take a long time. And it's going to be very hard for them to do. But I think you could eventually get to that point where you start to see states kind of come to some sort of norms and rules around this. Um, and I do also wonder if we're, you know, th these things do sort of go into cycles, right? We're in a, a cycle now where you're seeing a lot more very violent conflicts that have shifted towards stalemates, very high battle casualties. And you're also seeing a case under which there's kind of been a reversal of democracy around the globe, whether that would be, mm. you know, obviously authoritarianism in Russia and China, increasing threats to democratic governments in Europe, Democrat threats mm. to, to multiple democratic governments in Africa. But also, you know, the United States isn't looking too great, right? If we, if we get another mm. Trump administration, <laughs> you're not looking real democratically do. great either, right? So, mm. so mm. I think you could see a situation where it swings back to, better, more democratic government. And then you could start to see some consensus around this technology. Unfortunately, I think it may have to get worse before it gets better. We're gonna to have to see these governments start to see the impact of this kind of technology spread before you get to the moment of, okay, we need to get this under control. And there are precedents of them getting low level technology and relatively inexpensive technology like landmines under control. It's just, it's gonna take some time mm. for that, I think that happens. Okay, that's, 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 that's um, So it's not all that, well. <laughs> yeah, it's not public. It's not public. There's, there's, a, there's, a beautiful, there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful. Uh, Michael, it's um, I'll let you get back to the dog and the you know the, the, the teaching and that. But it's been it's been an interesting conversation. It's 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 been really an eye opener. I really, really appreciate you know the time and the efforts that you put in, and and I appreciate your your insight into into um to this topic, very sensitive topic. Thank you for having. And me. And I wish you the best in your in your new um. Your new project as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, same, same here. Same here. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. Take care.
Yeah, you too. Thank you viewers for tuning in today um on today's episode uh that was an interesting conversation with um professor michael bowl discussing um drone uh escalation and proliferation in, in warfare across the globe and but especially in africa uh we pray stay tuned to to the next episode uh but before you go um don't forget to subscribe and follow us on our youtube channel on our podcast channel stay tuned and we'll see you next bye